0: So we're in week four of this really journey through the Bible. And uh, we begin really the beginning, the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 6. That's where we'll be mostly today. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can navigate to the live events in the area. Find Vertical Life Church, and the scriptures we're using today will be listed there for you, as well as they'll be on the screen. I encourage you to bring your Bible with you. Because sometimes something will just pop out at you as we're going through the study. And if you don't have anything to kind of mark in, in the scripture or leave a note, then sometimes you can forget those things that God wants to remind you of later. So I encourage you to bring your Bible with you, if not a paper Bible, the digital Bible. And you can also um, put your notes there in the UVersion Bible app. But in week one, we, we discovered that God created all things so that he could have Uh, a Opportunity to create a family for himself. He created mankind on day six of creation that really Jesus himself Before he was born of the Virgin Mary existed before time as the Word of God and God the Father through Jesus Used Jesus to really create all that there is in John chapter 1 It says everything that was made was made by him through him and for him that Christ was the agent of creation and as jesus created that first human being adam he breathed into him the breath of life god created a family for himself and through adam and eve their life together they one day were deceived by the enemy the devil they rebelled against god they brought sin into the world and they messed everything up they brought chaos into the world of peace and as their sin began to be passed from father to son from mother to daughter that process now of sin the sin nature has really gone down through the generations there's not a person on earth the bible says is without sin everyone has sinned everyone has fallen short of god's glorious standard the perfection of god we all fall short and so now we're because of adam and eve we have this nature that is in opposition to god and and it is a a nature that we're inescapable we cannot Get out from underneath it. And Adam and Eve, through the course of time, begin to have children. Cain and Abel were their first two sons, or the uh, first two children we're told about. And because of this sin nature now, it begins to manifest in different ways. With Adam, it was not following God on what tree to eat from. With Cain, it was allowing jealousy to well up in his heart, and he murdered his younger brother. And that murder opened the door from even greater sin throughout all time. And as we read through the scriptures, if you begin to read in Genesis chapter 5, it begins to lay out the genealogies of Cain, how the sons and the daughters that he were to have over generation after generation. And as we see the sin unleashed in his generation, we see how it's affected the world. Abel was a righteous man. He loved God. He believed in God. He gave his worship and sacrifice out of The faith that he had in God, but yet Cain rebelled against God. Cain did not acknowledge God and, out of jealousy, slew Abel. And Abel's death, Abel would have been able to bring about a godly line, a godly line of faithful believers who would have followed after their father. But Cain put an end to that when he slew his brother. And so. The world now is beginning to be filled with people, with children, that have followed the way of their father Cain, not their father Abel. One of Cain's descendants, Lamech, he becomes the very first polygamist. He's the first one in the Bible in history that's recorded to have had more than one wife. This is not what God intended. God created one man and one woman to exist in marriage relationship for all eternity. And through the history, we see that being the case until Lamech's birth. Lamech comes on the scene, and he takes two wives, which was a violation of what God had created. We see a corruption of the family makeup, the human relationship. As well as through Lamech, we see out of this ungodly union, he has two sons by his wife, Ada, one of which becomes the father of shepherds and herdsmen, like Bedouin-type uh, peoples who wander around in tents and live in deserts. Uh, the other uh, wife, Zillah, had a son named Tubal Cain. His name literally means after the way of Cain or a descendant of Cain. And he became the father of metallurgy and he forged instruments of brass and iron and I- the like. And Lamech's wickedness did not end in polygamy, just distorting what God intended for marriage and human relationship, but he boasted to his wives one day about a young man who had injured him in some way. The Bible doesn't say exactly how, whether it was uh, intentional or accidental, but some young punk kid uh, bumped into him, hurt him some way, and he killed him out of revenge and out of vengeance. And he likened this death to the murder that Cain committed against Abel. So, we can see that there was an intentionality to this murder. Cain's descendants continued the path that Cain was on, rejecting God, rejecting faith, and going their own way. They began to build cities and kingdoms and really create themselves into a a superpower or a, a people that considered themselves to be God with no respect to God, faith, or righteousness. This is what's happening after the death of Abel and the expansion of the line of Cain. And because of this, there was a day when Adam was intimate with his wife Eve again, that God gave her another son. And the son was named Seth. And Seth's name means replacement. How would you like that for a name? You know, know anybody named Seth? Be like, yeah, you're a replacement. Replacement for what? You know, but that's what Seth's name means. Why? Because God intended Seth to replace Abel. Abel's righteous line could not continue, so God gave Eve another son, who was intended to replace the, the line that Abel would have brought into the world. And this is the uh, the popular view of scholars today from about the fifth century AD to current time, that Seth's line was a line of righteous men and women, that they honored God. And in the Scripture, we even see in the English translation this reflected as a popular and common belief. Seth's son Enosh, he was named Enosh, or it means man or mortal. He's said to be the one who restores faith in God amongst a a population of anti-God, anti-righteous generations, that he restores faith in God. We're going to see this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. In Genesis 4.26, it says, When Seth grew up, he had a son named Enosh. And at that time, somebody say at that time. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. So here we have wicked generations of Cain populating. Seth is born. He grows up. He has a family. He begins to have a son, the son named Enosh. Enosh is born at the time people first began to worship the Lord by name. And this is the common view of many scholars and and believers today. The difficulty is it actually doesn't make any logical sense to what's happening in the story. Because Adam and Eve worshipped God. They walked with God. They knew God's name. Uh, Abel and Cain were offering sacrifices to the Lord. Abel was worshipping the Lord. So it doesn't make sense that at this time people began to worship the Lord by name because the intimacy God had with man was actually severed prior to this point they had his name before now they don't and before the fifth century AD scholars such as Augustine of Hippo they that may name may mean nothing to you but his work actually does Augustine is responsible for arguing the founding uh, doctrines of the Christian faith like the Trinity if it weren't for Augustine's work and men like him during that time period The deity of Christ believing Jesus was divine and part of the Godhead might not be a General consensus today, but because of Augustine and men like him we have these foundational doctrines We know to be true. We know and have articulated throughout church history and Augustine had a different view On what this verse meant and so did the other believers during this period of time in verse 26 the, the, when it says, at that time, men began to worship the Lord, that phrase, at that time, can be translated begin, but that's not the primary rendering of the word in Hebrew. The primary rendering of that phrase is actually the word profane, pollute, or defile. So in the original language, in the Hebrew, it's not saying that when Enosh was born, this is the time period that men began to worship the Lord by name. It's actually saying it's the time when mankind began to pollute or defile or profane the name of God. The uh, Jewish translations of the text that have been a a common and approved uh, Jewish translations through their, their history... In, the, in works they call targums, there's different uh, documents, manuscripts that are commentaries on the, uh, the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. These targums record a different translation than what we have in the English. In the targum Onkelos, it says, In his days, meaning Enosh, the children of men ceased from praying in the name of the Lord. In the targum of Jonathan, it says, This was the age in the days of which they began to err, And they made themselves idols and surnamed their idols by the name of the word of the Lord. So they were creating idols and they were using God's name to name these false gods that they were creating for themselves. In the Targum Jarchi, it says, They began to call the names of men and the names of herbs by the name of the blessed God to make idols of them. So the common Hebrew understanding of this passage was not that man was returning to the worship of God. It's that man was turning against God and creating gods for themselves. This is more likely the understanding of what the Scripture is actually teaching us. Because after this passage of Scripture, you go into Genesis chapter 5 through the genealogies and then into Genesis chapter 6, we can see through the lines of Seth and Cain There are only two men in Scripture that are referred to as righteous. Seth has a uh, son who is uh, multiple generations down. He has a great, 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 great grandson named Noah. Many of us know the story of Noah and the ark, and we're getting ready to get into in just a moment. But Noah was known as a righteous man. He walked with God. There was another man who was known as a righteous man whose name was Enoch. And Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather Enoch only lived 365 years and in today we're like only that's that's a lot of years 365 but the average lifespan back then was 900 years if you look at the biblical narrative so Enoch only lived 365 years and it was because he was righteous he was holy he walked with God and God chose to take him to heaven without tasting death he's one of only two people in all the Bible that were afforded this privilege and Enoch was a true prophet. And we know this because in the New Testament, the Bible refers to a prophecy from Enoch in the book of Enoch that he, that's attributed or ascribed to his name. In Jude chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says, Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation of Adam, prophesied about these people when he said, Listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones. This is a direct quote from Enoch chapter 1, verse 9. In the book of Enoch, whose writing is not included in the canon of Scripture because of controversy around the 5th and 6th century, it is used in Scripture as a proof text of a biblical truth about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so it gives credibility to what Enoch is saying, at least in part to what it reveals about end times and the time of Noah's life during the pre-flood period of time. In Enoch's book, and I encourage you to read it sometime, it's fascinating and interesting what he says, Enoch at length writes about the days prior to the flood and what was actually taking place and we'll, we'll touch on it here in just a minute But we're going to read in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 to see what the Bible tells us about this time period But what's happening in the story as mankind is departing further and further away from God? in Genesis 6 in verse 1 it says then the people began to multiply on the earth Daughters were born to them and the sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives Then the Lord said my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time for they were our only mortal flesh in the future their normal lifespan will be no more than hundred and twenty years In those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. This is significant, and we'll touch on this in a minute. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky, for I am sorry I ever made them. So here what the Bible is telling us is that even after Enosh is born, through the line of Seth and the line of Cain, mankind didn't get righteous, they got wicked. They got evil to the point that God was so grieved in his heart that he couldn't stand to watch the wickedness any longer. This wickedness had befallen mankind. And so he comes to Noah and he says, I'm going to pour out judgment on the earth. I'm going to purge the earth from this wickedness. But there's something more going on here than simply mankind being sinful. Mankind's sinful today. We can see this in our everyday life, in our everyday news and and media. Something more profound was happening here on the earth as we're looking at this story about God's great romance. The Bible records that the sons of God came and took wives for themselves. This phrase, sons of God, in the original language is only mentioned one other time in all of Scripture. It's in the book of Job, and it refers to the angelic beings or angelic realm. So in Genesis, it's telling us that angels left heaven, came to the earth, took on flesh, took on humanity, and they began to procreate with human beings, with human women. And these angels, when they came to earth, they began to have offspring, and these offspring the Bible calls Nephilites or Nephilim, literally translated as giants, and they began to dominate the world. And it's interesting that the... that the Bible is telling us this because Enoch goes into even greater detail about what these Nephilim were doing, about what these fallen angels were doing. At Enoch, it says that 200 angels fell from heaven, landed on Mount Hermon in the Middle East. They had a pact that they made with one another that they were going to go and league together, that they were going to set themselves up as gods. They were going to procreate. They were going to have dominion over the earth. And while they're doing this in chapter 7 of Enoch, It says that these angels taught mankind sorcery, taught them all manners of cultivating the earth for mystical power. In chapter 8, he reveals that these angels taught men how to make weapons, how to make makeup, and all the nature of vanity, astrology, how to use the stars to divinate, to foretell the future, and all manner of occultic and dark magic. These angels were corrupting mankind, both physically and spiritually just a minute ago, we talked about the sons of Lamech, the line of Cain, who didn't just discover music and arts and shepherding, herding, and metallurgy spontaneously one day. If you think of a primitive man, a primitive mind, they didn't just one day and say, huh, you know, I wonder if I could do this and, you know, I can, you know, create medicine. They didn't just do that. What happened? These angels gave them this technology. They were given this technology not to help mankind, but to corrupt mankind and bring destruction on the earth. The results of this otherworldly technology and these human angelic unions were massive giant beings filled with evil. They began to eat human flesh where there wasn't enough food to feed them because of their size and the immense nature of what they were. They began to eat human flesh. In the book of Jasher, another extra-biblical book quoted in the Old Testament, It says that these angels were even attempting to mix species together, making human-animal hybrids or chimeras, and and they were sinning against both plants and animals and all of God's creation. And if you think of legends, you think of half-man, half-goat, or half-man, half-bull, these taurus, these things of legend and mythology. This is what the Bible is telling us is happening during this period of time. This is where the legends of Greek mythology... Comes into being. You think of the the stories of Zeus and the Greek gods versus the Titans. Did you know that every ancient culture on just about every continent of the world tells the very same story? Every culture has a flood myth, quote unquote, where the gods or God had to destroy the earth to purge it of wickedness, and they tell it in their own way. This is not just a Judeo Christian belief. This is a history of the world that's been recorded throughout all of time that's been dismissed and overlooked. And now mankind, through archaeology and the sciences, we're discovering the very evidence of these things, but because mankind dismisses God or anything supernatural, they have to come up with their own answer to what what is the answer to what we're finding in the archaeological record. There's a show that I really like to watch on television called Ancient Aliens. Has anyone ever heard of that show, A show of hands, Ancient Aliens? Just a few people. It's on the History Channel. So here's the premise, and here's why I like it, because I I like archaeology. I like to look at ancient structures and and, uh, historical time periods and things like that. And you have these philosophers, these scientists on this show who are looking at all of these ancient megalithic structures, and they're not christians they're unbelievers and they're looking at the technology that had to have been in existence for these things to be made did you know that some of these ancient sites they have boulders at the base of their structures that are so heavy we have no technology today that can even lift it or move it and yet these primitive people were able to do these things in, in in ancient culture, we see uh, cave paintings and different mosaics on the walls of these megalithic structures, these ancient temples, and just about all of them, they depict humans as regular size, but their king or their god as a giant. It's in the record. It's there. We've dismissed it as fantasy or legend or myth, but it's all over the planet. And so these, these people on this show, they're looking at this and they're saying, well, it can't be God because we don't believe in God. And there can be no other answer other than aliens, and so they, they claim the aliens came down from from another planet and they, you know, were intermingling with humankind. And it's gotten to the point that, especially because the host of the show is pretty crazy-looking, that uh, there's tons of memes online that you can look at that I think are absolutely hysterical. So for a little comic relief today, I thought I'd bring some to you. If we go ahead and show up the first picture, so here's the guy, and it says, "I'm not saying it was aliens." but it was aliens let's go to the next one he's like I don't know therefore aliens that's a this is answer these are these guys have doctorates and all, all sorts of stuff go to the next one I didn't hear your question but the answer is aliens let's go to the next one I put headphones in my pocket wrapped it up neatly and they came out tangled aliens there you go so th- these are just things it's so it's kind of humorous but what I think is fascinating is they're discovering the very story that the Bible's telling us. They have the wrong premise, but they have the right story. It wasn't aliens from another planet coming down. It was the demonic kingdom. It was angels that defected against God came down to set themselves up as kings on the earth. You see, I always used to wonder, why did God flood the world because of sin? Because if you think about... All of history, mankind, because of Adam and Eve, have been sinful this entire time. They've been sinful. we've, We've polluted, we've corrupted everything. There's always been murder. There's always been abuse. There's always been sexual immorality and all of these things. Why did he flood the earth then and then promise not to do that again? And the answer is in this story. It's because it wasn't just sin that was taking place. It was the infiltration of the demonic. It was the corruption in all of creation. It was how the enemy was trying to twist and corrupt everything God had created down to the genetic code of humankind. In Genesis chapter 6, we see why God picked Noah to save the world. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, and the only blameless person living on the earth at that time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. So we know Noah was a righteous man. He trusted God. He believed in God. But if you read this same verse in the King James Version, it says this. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his, what's that word? Generations. He was perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. The word perfect means without blemish. Now, we know that Noah was not without sin. Why? Because since Adam, all have sinned. He was not without sin. Though he was counted righteous for his faith, he was not without sin. So what, is, what does it mean he was without blemish? This same phrase is used in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, referring to the genetically pure animal that was required to sacrifice in order to dedicate the temple of God to the nation of Israel. The Bible here is telling us Noah wasn't just faithful, but that he was a pure bloodline. His bloodline, his genetic code was not compromised with what the enemy was doing during that time period before the flood. He was without physical defect, perfect in his generations, referring to his very genetic code. It appears from the biblical text that not only did Noah walk with God and had relationship with God, but Noah's bloodline from the line of Seth down to himself had been preserved, untainted by the wickedness and corruption of mankind. Other people, the other bloodlines in the world were defiled with the wickedness of the fallen angels, and we see this in Genesis 6 verse 5 It says God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth And that every imagination of their thoughts of his heart was only evil It repented the Lord that he made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart We skip to verse 12 and 13 It says "And God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt for what's that word all? flesh had been corrupted Flesh literally literally means the body, the physicality, the genetic code, the bloodline. All flesh, man and animals alike, had been corrupted. Their way had been corrupted on the way of the earth. Something was happening into the very fabric of our creation that the enemy was doing in the world to the point that God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. It had not only corrupted them physically, but it corrupted them mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So God had to destroy the corruption. All flesh is not a merely mention of humanity itself, but the entire creative order. So God sends this flood, not to just d- destroy the corruption and, and wipe it out of existence, but in Jude, Jude 6 tells us there was another purpose. In Jude 6, it says, "The angels, which kept not their first estate, the 200 that fell down and landed on Mount Hermon and began to uh, infiltrate and spread this evil across the world." It says they left their habitation. God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day." The purpose of the flood was to reboot the world to purge the, the, the depravity, the corruption that the enemy was perpetrating on the earth, to kill these, the hybrid offspring that were uh, bringing damnable and corruptive practices to the earth that were laying waste to everything God had created, and to conquer these demonic beings and put them under uh, house arrest, so to speak, to give mankind a chance at survival, and the potential for God's promise in Genesis 3 to bring a Redeemer Through the world uh, into being. God chose Noah because he was pure, both of heart and in body, and he used him to provide the way for the Messiah to come one day and save us all from our sins. So here's the point. Here's what I want to get at today. As we're looking at who Jesus is and what his heart is, because he did not flood the earth because he was angry with man. He flooded the earth because he was grieved in his spirit of what was happening to his people, to his children, and ultimately his bride. What happened with Adam unleashed this curse. It was not only passed down, but it intensified with every generation. We look at what Adam's sin was, it intensified with Cain. Cain's sin, it intensified with Lamech in every subsequent generation the longer generational curses of sin and death get passed down from parent to child and as long as those curses remain in place the more power and authority the enemy has over that family line to sow in pain suffering and corruption the only merciful act god could do during that time period was to cleanse the world of these corrupted lines so it could relieve the, the righteous of the suffering caused by the unrighteous. If we look at this story. God pursued, ca, pursued Cain after he murdered, or even before he murdered, when he offered an unworthy sacrifice. Why? It was out of love. God loved Cain. But Cain, in that moment, turned his back on God, and that one act sent like a falling domino set or a, a ripple effect in a pool. It sent this... This effect down his family line, all the way to the point where it gave the devil the ability and capacity to pervert everyone who came after him, even all of creation. And our Father in heaven had to watch this happen. Why? Because he gave mankind a gift. He gave us the ability to choose. He gave us a free will to choose God or to reject God, to choose him, to trust him, or to reject God. And through Cain, mankind rejected God, and our Father in heaven had to watch almost helplessly as his children sank further and further into darkness. And I say almost because he would not violate the free will that he gave us. He doesn't force himself on anyone. If one man in Cain's line, Or one woman in Cain's line had stopped for a moment and said, I'm not going to continue this path. I'm going to repent of my sins and I'm going to turn to God, then maybe more than eight would have been saved on the ark. Or the potential is maybe the ark wouldn't have been needed altogether. And this struck out to me as I'm looking at this story, thinking about how sins pass through the family line, through the generations, how curses pass through the generations. And I stopped to think about my life, and I thought, who do I have in my life to thank God for? Because they turned to Jesus Christ at some point in my family's history. And said, I'm not going to continue the way of my flesh or continue the way of unbelief. I'm going to repent of my sins. I'm going to trust in God for the salvation of my soul. And as I'm thinking about this, I I know that on my mom's side, there's a rich history of of ministers and and believers in Christ. But on my dad's side, it really goes just back to my grandfather. My grandfather was not a believer when he and my grandmother were married. And my grandmother actually led him to Jesus. But if my grandfather had not become a Christian my dad would not have grown up in a Christian home and he would not have raised us in a Christian he might not even have met my mom because of the life that he was pursuing at that time it was pinnacle for my grandfather to come to Christ and to give his life to Jesus and decide to serve God so that I could even come into existence and the door of faith could be opened to me and I could meet my wife and then through us we could have four amazing kids who have all accepted Christ as their Savior and one day they're going to meet someone and they're going to cultivate a family line that's going to worship Jesus, my prayer, and then it's going to continue on and on and on. If my grandfather had not made that decision, I might not be here today. That's how pinnacle the generation and understanding the, the impact of generational sin and generational faith is. And I just ask you today think about your family history. Who do you have to thank for giving their life to Jesus so you have an opportunity to know him too? Who is it in your life? You know, my wife and I, in our position, we get to hear a lot of stories, a lot of good ones, but also a lot of difficult ones. And not so long ago, when she was involved in a ministry that went into strip clubs to try to reach women in the sex industry, she got to hear of a lot of stories of pain and brokenness. And through studying human trafficking and even what happens in the foster care system and and all the different just difficulties that people experience on an everyday basis. It's amazing about what you discover about what people are going through. I have friends who are police officers who share stories about stuff they deal with on a day and and day out basis. And all it does is just confirms what the Bible says about generational sin. The longer sin is allowed to exist in a generation, the more it intensifies Down That family line and it enables the devil to have greater authority and power over The generations to come as long as each generation agrees with his plan to steal kill and destroy and Participates in his evil schemes. He continues to work unhindered and unopposed But in God's grace and in God's sovereignty sometimes through his children There's a response of faith where someone says, I'm going to bridge the gap for this person. I'm going to intercede, and I'm going to share the gospel, the power of God for salvation. I'm going to share the good news, because there is good news in Jesus Christ. Amen? There's good news. That means we can be not only forgiven of our sin but set free from the power of sin and death we can have a relationship with God and be restored to what we were created for in the beginning and sometimes along the way in the midst of the most broken and painful situations, somebody comes in and says I'm going to love you enough to tell you about Jesus and that little child that little boy or that little girl accepts Christ and instantly something shifts in that family line as God begins to cultivate the heart of a son or daughter of God in that individual, and they're able to break away from the curses that have been placed on that family line so that that generational curse can stop and the blessing of God and favor of God can be unleashed for a new generation. It's a powerful thing. God sent the flood to stop these unending cycles of wickedness that were out of control, to put a stop to the work of Satan unleashing the world, to, to give us a second chance. And ultimately, the story of Noah in the ark is a picture of how God would intervene again one day, how he desires to intervene for you and for me. In 1 Peter 3.20 and 3-21, Peter writes, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat, only eight people saved from drowning, were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water, the flood water, is a picture of baptism which now saves you. Not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It's effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What saved Noah was that he believed God. He trusted God. He entered the ark. And when the floodwaters came, it wasn't death that met Noah. It was life. Life for him and his family. And when we believe on Jesus Christ and we uh, trust him enough, we enter that water of baptism not to enter into judgment, but we get united with Christ. We enter in Christ who is the ark of our salvation. And when the water comes, it doesn't judge, but it purifies. And as we come out of the water, we rise again in the power of the Lord's resurrection, breaking free from the power of sin and death once and for all. No longer slaves to sin, no longer to have to fall along the way of our ancestors, but free to walk in a new life. God did not merely look at the world as it was, but Jesus looked through the corridors of time and saw how wicked it was in Noah's day and if it were to continue, how it would mean an end for all humanity. So he intervened so we could be saved. And God did the same thing again when he saw the depravity of man and it didn't matter how much time they studied the law and how many sacrifices they gave. God had to intervene or else the same event would happen and he sent Jesus Christ to the cross to provide a way for us to be saved. And now just as Noah was sent to preach to the world We've been given the command to preach, to call people to repent, to trust in Jesus Christ. For there is coming a day when another purging will happen on the earth. In Matthew 24, 37, Jesus said, As the days of Noah were, so shall also coming the Son of Man be. There's a day coming when the world will again be like the time of Noah before the flood. Just like each generation gets more wicked and more demonic with every Generation that passes, so it will be at the time of the end of the world. A recent Pew Research study found that a large and growing percentage of Americans are getting involved in the occult, are getting involved in New Age. They believe in reincarnation, astrology, psychics, and the presence of spirits in nature. In fact, 6 in 10 Americans accept at least one or more of these beliefs. Shockingly, the number is just Uh, is just as high among self-identified Christians. Even Christians in the church today believe in these occultic things. Even agnostics who have no specified belief, over half, in fact, have adopted occult ideas along with the overwhelming majority of those who call themselves spiritual. According to the new research by Trinity College in Connecticut, Wicca, which is witchcraft, is one of the fastest growing religions in the country. Between 1990 and 2008, it saw a 40-fold increase in the number of adherents, one and a half million americans now identify publicly and unashamedly as wiccan or pagan no longer is condemning witchcraft in the occult the popular thing in our society but participation with demons in the mainstream through media television shows popular stories has become mainstream matter of fact last october a man built a 9,000 pound Ouija board in Salem, Massachusetts, the location of the Salem witch trials. It takes nine people to operate and his hopes were that they could open a portal in order to contact spirits on the other side. This is in the United States of America. Why is this happening, beloved? It's happening because generation after generation after generation of families turning their back on God turning the back on the voice of righteousness is increasing all the more reason why as believers in christ if we're filled with the spirit god lives in us we need to cry out to the world to turn from your sin trust in the lord repent and turn to jesus The desperate cry of God to his children to return to him so that he can love them and heal them needs to be declared throughout the world. The gospel needs to be the primary conversation on our lips. It's up to us to champion that message and declare the word of God to this perishing world to even have a chance of salvation. If we don't first clean our homes and and, and purify our own selves, our own lives and our own hearts, we might find ourselves along the way of those during the time of Noah where the ark comes but we miss the boat. If we continue to compromise with culture, obsessing about the latest trends and giving ourselves over to demonic ideas and beliefs and practices, we'll continue unleashing the cursing into our future generations. And then how... Can we even begin to work to rescue those around us? And we're praying for 20 families to uh, join us this year to become part of our church family. If we're spending our time investing into the world, into what the enemy would have us invest, how can we even make time for the things of God? The war for the world and the war for our heart is underway today. The battle is not over Though the war has ultimately been won through Christ on the cross, the battle for your heart is underway even in this moment. And the question is, beloved, who will you contend for? Who are you going to contend for if not for your own family line and generation? If not for the people in your life? If not for the future generations who will look back one day and say, you know, this aunt, this uncle, this grandfather, this parent was the one who stood in the gap for us. I, I have to ask myself, will my family, a hundred years from now, be able to look back and say, Joey was a man of God, that he honored the Lord, that he walked with God, and because of the favor and blessing of God on his life, we now get to walk in the favor and blessing of God. Rather than generational curses of bondage and brokenness and sin and suffering, we get to walk in the freedom of being called a child of God? And the same question I would pose to you, will your generations be able to say the same about your life? In Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, God says, You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Idolatry is not accepted by the Lord. He says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Sin gets passed down. Curses get passed down. The more we unleash, the more our children and our children's children have to endure. But what's amazing about this is that though curses are only supposed to go between the third and fourth generation, look at what he says in verse 6. He says, I unlavish unfailing love for what? A thousand generations. God's heart is not for cursing to pass down, but for blessing to pass down. Sin goes far down the line, but God's blessing goes even further. And God saves a soul. God redeems a heart, not for the soul only, but for an eternity of generations coming after them. God does not just merely love you. He loves everyone coming after you. He loves your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And God is pursuing your heart today so that through your life, the door can be opened for him to pursue those coming after you. You and I are here today because of the faith of our forefathers. Or maybe we're first generation and we were the ones that turned to Christ. Maybe we were the first believers in our family line, and I praise God for that. But we're the ones that are standing here on the shoulders of those who've gone before us And we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do today to ensure that in the years to come, our children worship the Lord? What are we going to do today to ensure that our coworkers, our family, our friends, the people we rub shoulders with at the grocery store have a relationship with God and will find salvation in the last day? What are we going to do to ensure that our family won't be counted among those who reject God, but those who call on the name of the Lord? So just like in Noah's day, Satan is warring for your heart. But for those of you who are in Christ, we've been given a great victory. Jesus is the lover of generations. He loves your family line. He loves those that have, were before you. He loves those coming after you. And today, he's inviting you to join him in that passionate pursuit, to see salvation come to your home and for, for future generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word today. God, I thank you for this reality, Lord, that what the enemy meant for evil, God, you turned for good. That you weren't content with just allowing mankind to be destroyed, that it grieved your heart to see what was happening to us, and so at the right time, you intervened so that we who are here today could come and be here today. That we could have life, that we could have breath, that we could have an opportunity to trust in you, to have a relationship with you. And at the same time, God, you saw through the corridor of time that there needed to be a day when all sin and death could be overturned once and for all. And so Jesus came at just the right time to save sinners from their sin. And because of his work on the cross, because of his death on the cross, and the blood that was shed, and his glorious resurrection, we can have new life. But God, this faith is not just a self-centered faith, which is about making us feel good about ourselves and knowing we're okay with you. This faith is a mission to redeem the world. This faith is a pursuit that raises up a bride, an eternal companion for your son, Jesus, and through relationship together, we together go out to reach the lost, to reach those who are far from you, to bring them into this faith family. And God, I pray that we would have that Revelation this morning God that you are Passionate about our generations God that there are generations Of people and family lines out there Today that don't know you they've Rejected you they're even now Agreeing with the enemy and pursuing The ways the enemy just like Cain's generations Did they're pursuing and They're trying to find a way to bring The enemy into this world To set the enemy up as God to set the enemy up God To bring evil and corruption And and everything that stands against your glorious name, God, into this world. And so, God, I pray for your children. I pray for your church. As the music begins to play, God, I just intercede right now for Vertical Life Church that we in our hearts, God, would not stay cold or silent. God, that there would be such a burden in us, Lord, a fire and a zeal. That we would recognize, God, that your heart is for the world. And as passionate as you pursued us, God, you're pursuing others. But your role and your plan is not just to supernaturally make everyone believe in Jesus. It's for your children who are called by your name to humble themselves and pray, to seek your face and turn from their wicked ways. And then through your work in their lives, healing can come to the land. It's for those who call on your name, God, to rise up and say, I'm not going to stay silent, but I'm going to stand in the gap. I'm going to intercede for those who don't have a relationship with God. I'm going to intercede for my family, for my friends. I'm going to intercede for my community. I'm going to get involved in the areas that, where I live so that a voice for God can be made known into this community so those who have no shot at redemption can have the gracious privilege of hearing about what Jesus did for them on the cross. God, this faith thing is not about a religious experience. It's about an ultimate purpose that's found in who you are and who you created us to be. God, I pray for the one here today, God, that doesn't know you as their personal Savior. For the one that's never had that moment where they gave you their heart, where they discovered what relationship with God is about. It's not about religious duties or participation. It's about knowing their creator and being loved perfectly and infinitely by God. And Paul tells us clearly how to begin that relationship with you. He says, we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and we declare you as our Lord and Savior. We have that moment where we repent of our sins and we say, God, no more am I following the ways of my flesh or the ways of this world. I'm giving you my heart. You are king of my life now and forever. God, I pray for the one here today that doesn't know if they were to die today, they'd be accepted by you because of the sin that's in their life. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you begin ministering to them right now. In Jesus' name. As we go into a time of response, Lord, that you would motivate and work in their heart, that they would come forward and they would receive you today. God, I pray for the Christian here today that's been cold, that's been apathetic, that's lived their life invisible to the world. And the world wouldn't know that they were a believer if they even uh, like tried to figure it out. There'd be no evidence that they had a faith in Christ because of the way they lived their life. God, I pray that that believer would fall on their knees today in repentance and that they'd rise with a passionate zeal a passionate fire that says no more today am I going to be silent I'm going to represent my father well I'm going to represent my savior well I pray for the parent today with rebellious children I pray for the spouse today with a wayward husband a wayward wife God I pray for the 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 believer here today God that has family dynamics at work that, are, that it's not releasing blessing into their family but is seeing cursing being released God I just pray for breakthrough over those family lines right now in Jesus name that the lost would be found that the struggling would be redeemed God that the sick would be made whole God I pray that your Holy Spirit would just do that miracle work that can only be done through Jesus And I pray this in Jesus' name. With every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. We're just going to remain in a time of prayer and response for just a moment. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, you don't know that your sins are forgiven. You don't know that if you were to die today, you would go to be with the Lord. Then just right now, in the quietness of this moment, I'm going to invite you to stand up, slip out from your seat, and come down to the front. We'll pray together. And I'm telling you, it's going to be the prayer that's going to radically change your life. If you're here today and God's speaking to your heart there are areas of your life you need to give to Him, you recognize that the generations coming after you need you to be a man of God, to be a woman of God, a person of faith, then right now slip out from your seat and come down and pray. Whether it's just apathy or there's a struggle in your life, lay yourself down and give your heart to the Lord. I'm a firm believer that in steps of faith, activate the miracle of God. So that's you. Whatever is in your life, no matter what struggle, if you need prayer for healing, there's sickness in your body, you need healing, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to come. Whatever it is, you come forward and pray. I'm going to ask my wife to come for prayer as well. On the count of three: one, two, three. Whatever you need, you come up.